Guys, we're picking up our study in Leviticus tonight. Back to the law. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 14. And um, let's pray once more a brief, just kind of, just to get right back into this. Lord, we, we do just cry out to you for mercy. Without you, we can do nothing. But Lord, with you, we can all do all things. And Father, as we open your word, I pray that there would be something of an awe of what we're doing, that we would not take this lightly, that we would not be cavalier about this, because this is the eternal, inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. And if we don't get in line with it, it's not the word of God that's wrong, it's us. So Lord, bring us back in line with your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak. To, I just pray you'd speak to each one of us in an individual way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's been a while. It's been a long while since we've been in Leviticus. And uh, because of that, I just want to take a couple moments just to, just to kind of get us back into um, the flow of this book. And so uh, just as a reminder, Leviticus is kind of a sequel to the book of Exodus, in that the children of Israel are still camped at Mount Sinai. Moses has received the law. The tabernacle has been built. And now Moses is declaring to the children of Israel the law that was received at Mount Sinai. And this law is kind of a worship handbook, if you would, for the children of Israel. What I mean by that is the theme of the book of Leviticus is the holiness of God. The altogether separateness of God. And the question is, how do God's people approach and live a life that is pleasing to a holy God? And so in, this is very broad stroke, general terms, but that's in essence the flow of the book. The first half of the book deals primarily with sacrifice. And then after about chapter 17 to the end, it deals with primarily the idea of separation. And we'll talk more about that later. The section we're in now, actually, that we just finished, chapters 1 through 11, um, dealt with this idea of atonement. And we looked at all these different kinds of sacrifices. And then we got to chapter um, 12, and there was a shift. And now we're looking at this idea of defilement. And that is this. Clean and unclean. How many of you guys have read through Leviticus, or at least chunks of it? Okay, so you, you come across this idea of what's clean and what's unclean. What's acceptable to God, what's not acceptable to God. And the whole idea was, is that, listen, God's holy people would live lives that looked very different from the world around them. And so God is giving, he's getting all up in their kitchen. I mean, he's talking about what they can, literally, like what they can eat, what they can't eat. What they can wear, what they can't wear. What they can do, what they can't do. And he's making these delineations of what's clean and what's unclean. Then as we got into chapter 13, we kind of opened up in chapter 13 and 14, there's this cool little section that's dealing specifically with the laws of, uh, that would pertain to those who have leprosy. Now, leprosy is just basically an infectious skin disease. There was many types, but the, the, the kind that's being spoken of primarily is this, what we would call Hansen's disease now, but, and there's a cure now, but back in the day, there was no cure. And so um, it was, it, it's talking about, okay, what do you do if somebody has this dreaded disease? And so chapter 13 dealt with the examination and the diagnosis. So if somebody came to a priest, they would come to the priest, and I'm just kind of 
off my memory here. They would come to the priest, and they would basically say, I think, you know, I got this spot or whatever. And there'd be this process that they would go through. And the priest would look at it. He would quarantine them. We know all about quarantine, right? And, uh, and then they would reexamine it. And if it cleared up, he's good to go. If it was full-blown leprosy, at that point, there was a separation. Listen, that person was separated from the rest of the community. And it was a heavy thing because at that point, he is deemed unclean or she is deemed unclean for the rest of their lives. And then the slow process of leprosy killing them would set in. It was horrible. It separated from family. It, it killed the nerve endings in your body. It eventually just killed you from the inside out. And the only other people you were with was, were lepers. And then on top of that, there was a stigma attached because if you had leprosy, in their minds, it was clear indication that God was judging you, that there's some inward hidden sin that nobody else saw but God saw and he's judging you for it. And so there was a stigma, there was unclean, all this crazy stuff. And we talked about um, in here in my introduction, reminder, we talked about how leprosy is very much a, a picture or a type of sin in the Bible for a lot of various reasons that I won't go into, but it was incurable. It was un, it was. Um, it was horrible. And, and so we talked about how the only cure for sin is that Jesus Christ, the sinless one, came and took our sin upon him. He t- the, the only clean one became unclean that we might become clean. Amen? And we talked about that. But now as we get into chapter 14, let me just kind of give you a, a quick overview of the chapter. The chapter's actually broken up into two sections. We're only going to look at the first section tonight. It's a, it's a doozy. I mean, it's like 54 verses long. This is no lightweight chapter. Um, the first part up through about verse 32, which we'll cover tonight, is dealing with this ceremony we'll talk about in a second. The, the last part is dealing with leprosy in the house. This is when you call, you know, the mold removal guy to come and clean your house, right, Tanner? So we'll talk about that section uh, next week. But the section we're looking at now, and I I want you to kind of refocus if I lost you, let me just give you a quick summary of what this is about, because this will help going in. Chapter 14 is a very intricate, detailed, confusing ceremony or procedure that was to be done on behalf of somebody that had been healed from leprosy. And what it was doing was, making them ceremonially clean and reinstating them back into the community. Does that make sense? So this is a ceremony, describing a ceremony that would be performed on somebody that had already previously been healed by leprosy, from leprosy, and this was to make them ceremonially clean and then to welcome, you know, kind of get them back into society, into the community. Now, by the way, remember, leprosy in Bible days is incurable. And as you read through the Gospels, you may have wondered sometimes, like Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 17, uh, I think Mark or Matthew chapter 8, uh, there's a couple of scenes where Jesus, for example, Mark 1, there's a leper that comes to him, and Jesus touches him, which you, you understand, like if a clean person touched a leper, they're automatically unclean, so no, they never had human touch. So Jesus, the Son of God, touches this guy. Probably the first time this guy's been touched, and who knows, except for other lepers, and, and heals him. But the guy says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And he says, I'm willing, and he makes him clean. But then do you remember what he said? Now go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice for a witness unto them. 
Same thing in Luke chapter 17 when the 10 lepers came to him and he said, go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice, make the offering. What is he talking about there? He's talking about what we're about to look at. Uh, Leviticus chapter 14. This is the ceremony that, or the offering that would be made for somebody who'd been cleansed from leprosy. My question has always been, how many times had they done this, the priests, before Jesus showed up? Goose egg. And I could just see them in like Levitical school, like, you know, priest school. And they're like playing hooky when they got to Leviticus 14. It's like, we're never going to use that chapter. You know, it's like when you're in school, like, I just want to do so. I want to learn something that's practical for my life, you know. So I don't have to have like math and like biology and stuff. And that's probably how they felt about this chapter. And then Jesus shows up and all these guys. And, and the Bible says he did more miracles in the, than any volume of book can contain. We don't have all the miracles here. Leper after leper after leper. I mean, I'm sure they're like bowling it up on this chapter. Like, what do we do? Okay, get a bird and, you know. And, and so all of a sudden it's this testimony to the priest. Well, this is the, this is the ceremony. And you might think to yourself, and we actually are going to read some of the chapters here in a second. But you might think to yourself, well, is there any practical application for us? And, and I think what you're going to find, if I ever get to it, is um, there's, there's some glorious truths tucked in here. Because remember, Leviticus, though it's Old Testament law, it is the seedbed of New Testament theology. It lays that foundation for us to have an understanding of New Testament theology. And one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is this idea of sanctification. Hope you have a notebook and a pen. I'm going to give you a lot of stuff that you might want to jot down. The idea is sanctification. And I'll explain that in a second. Well, let's get into this. This, um, again, for your notes, if you, if you want to be a student of this, um, the ceremony breaks down into two sections. The first section lasted for seven days. The last section was just the eighth day, and it was just something they did on the eighth day. So the first seven days are spoken of in verses 1 through 9, and we'll look at those. So let's start by looking at the first three verses. It says this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. And he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then if the case of leprous disease is healed in that leprous person... The priest shall command them to take who is cleansed, two live birds, and we'll get to that part in a second. What I want you to see for now, and I don't mean to make a, I'm not trying to like, you know, make small little delineations here, but this is, I think is important. Notice what it says in verse 2. This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. Later in verse 3 it says, then in the case of a diseased person, a leprous disease is healed in the leprous person. Here's the point I just want to make, and then I want to go off on a, on a tangent, <laughs> is this ceremony was not for their healing. It was for their cleansing. Does that make sense? The ceremony wasn't to make them healed from leprosy. The ceremony was for somebody who had already been healed from leprosy, and it was a cleansing. And listen, the healing of their leprosy was instantaneous when they encountered Jesus. But their cleansing ceremonially and their uh, injection back into the community and all of that stuff was a process and a procedure that took time. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is because I think within this, you see this great contrast uh, between or a picture or a hint at 
justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification. Whereas justification is a one moment in time instantaneous act, but sanctification is a process of cleaning up, if you would, after justification has taken place. Does that make sense? And, and that's important to understand. Now, let me just kind of, again, uh, this is not just empty theology stuff. These are things, as we as believers, need to have down and have down and have down and have down. Not just for our own benefit, so that we can know what we believe, why we believe it, and share it with others. First of all, let me talk a little bit about this idea of justification. You see, remember, leprosy was a picture of sin. And when that sinner or, or that leper was touched by Jesus and healed by Jesus, it's a, it's a picture for us of when we as sinners encountered Christ and we were healed, so to speak. Amen? You see, the moment that you received Jesus Christ in your, as your Lord and Savior, you, when you were born again, the Bible says you were justified. Now, justification, uh, one simple definition is this. It means to put right. Listen, it means to put right. Um, the clever way of remembering it, the cliche way of remembering it is justification. Just as if I'd, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. It's a judicial term, and it speaks of a judge, so to speak, slamming the gavel down and declaring something to be so. There's no process involved. There's no, like, it'll happen over a period of time. No, it is a clean, clear, moment-in-time declaration of putting something right. And the Bible declares, and I won't take the time to, to unpack all of it, but I want to give you some homework of reading uh, Romans chapter 3, the Bible declares that we are justified. Listen, that means we are put right with God, made right with God when we come to him in faith and receive our salvation. Amen? Amen. Now, we are made right with God fully and completely based on his grace that we access through faith based on his redemptive work on the cross where he was the propitiation for our sins. In other words, the question is, how can a righteous God make unrighteous people righteous righteously? How can a righteous God make unrighteous people righteous? And the Bible does say he, may, he justifies the ungodly. He takes ungodly people and declares them righteous. But how can a righteous God do that without compromising his own righteousness? Does that make sense? How could a judge stand before somebody who uh, is, is uh, clearly a rapist or something and says, well, you know what, we're just going to say not guilty, da, da, da. Justice was compromised, wasn't it? But how can God justly justify unrighteous people? It's all because it's based on the work that Jesus did on our behalf. He went to the cross and bore our sin. So all of the sin and all of the punishment and the wrath that we incurred, that the world incurred, was laid on Jesus, though he was innocent. He took the full, not partial, not little bit, not held back, the full impact of God's wrath towards mankind on himself as the innocent one. And he died. And then he raised from the dead. And he was raised for our justification. Amen? And so when we come in faith to God, we are justified. Now, again, there's two aspects to justification that are important. 
and I didn't get this for the longest time in my Christian walk. The first aspect is that of forgiveness. And I just use, I just kind of lump that together so often in my Christian experience that I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. How many of you guys are glad you're forgiven of your sins? Amen. Like half of you? How many of you guys are glad you're forgiven of your sin and not going to hell and stuff? Like that's important. Um, when you really get to that place where, you, where you, the light bulb goes on and it clicks and you realize how sinful you really are, at least you get a glimpse of how sinful you are, and you realize that you're forgiven, it's just, it'll melt your heart and thrash your life forever. But you see, that's only half the story. Justification does include forgiveness. We are forgiven. And if you want a couple of scriptures that I think are, are, are great to keep in mind with that, um, Romans 4, 7 um, says, you know, blessed is the man whose, whose transgressions are forgiven. Um, and basically what that does is it puts your account to zero, doesn't it? You're forgiven. Let's say, you, you owe a debt of, let's just say you owe $10,000 to me. But I'm just like, bro, I forgive you of your debt. That's cool. You're not, you're not in the red anymore. You're just at zero. And you're like stoked. Yes. But see, that's only half the issue. Justification also deals with this, this uh, other doctrine called imputation, where God imputes to us. Now, that's, that's different. Imputation is speaking of putting into an account. Uh, Romans 5.17 talks about how um, by one man's sin, that is Adam, uh, we were all, you know, condemned or under death. But through another man's sacrifice, Jesus, we've been made righteous. And guys, when we are justified, we're not only forgiven of our sin. Listen, this is when it gets crazy. And this is the part that blew my mind later in my Christian life. I am now imputed with the very righteousness of God. Does that make sense? So it's back to the analogy, the $10,000. And you, you know, like Isaiah says, bro, I don't have that 10 G's that, you know, you loan me. And I'm like, you're forgiven. It's okay. And that brought his account up to zero. But then later, unbeknownst to him, I'm feeling saucy. And I go to his bank, and I, I deposit $100,000 into his bank account. Because I, I roll like that. That's, I'm a pastor. We roll deep. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, so, do you guys see the point? Forgiveness is wonderful, great, we rejoice in that. But that, in a sense, brings our spiritual bank account to zero. Imputation says, no, it's not that you're just forgiven. You are righteous. You're as righteous as Jesus himself. And that would be so blasphemous if it wasn't true and in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin was made sin that we might become the righteousness of God. You are as righteous as Jesus Christ himself if you're a believer in him. And you say, no, I'm not. Listen, it is not based on your performance. It is based on his performance and his perfect record was imputed to you, and your awful record was imputed to him. It's the great exchange. See, forgiveness says, you're forgiven, go your way. Imputation says, you're righteous, come to me. And guys, the idea of being righteous before God or declared in justification, righteous before God, is not just right and wrong, it speaks of acceptance. And if you've been justified, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it means Jesus has paid your sin and he has imputed to you his very righteousness and you are accepted by the Father. You're not tolerated. You're not 
just grandfathered in or whatever. You're accepted into the beloved. You're adopted as a daughter, as a son. And he's our father. And we have full access to God himself because we are robed in the very righteousness of Jesus himself. Amen? That's justification. And that's momentary. And that's in the moment. That happens the moment a person comes to faith in Christ. But see, this is what we're talking about. This ceremony speaks of this idea of sanctification, which is different than justification, though sometimes those terms are, are thrown around you know, um, interchangeably, and we could talk about that. We won't. But sanctification is a little different. I'll try not to take so much time on this. Let me give you a definition for sanctification. It basically means separation to God, hagiazo in the Greek, hagiazo. Now, if you do your little study, you'll also find that the word saint and the word holy Hagias are the same root word, the root word of hagiazo, of sanctification. So the word holy, the word saint, the word um, sanctification or sanctify carry the same idea of being set apart. But listen, this is important, set apart to God. Now, I like this definition. I've always liked this. This is from Nelson's Bible Dictionary. It's one of my favorite Bible dictionaries to use. And this is just the first line in their long definition of sanctification. And this is how Nelson's Bible Dictionary puts it. The process by God's grace by which the believer is separated from sin and becomes dedicated to God's righteousness. Let me read it again. The process, key word, by God's grace, key concept, by which the believer is separated from sin and dedicated to God's righteousness. Does that make sense? So sanctification, let me just put it in a different way. Sanctification is the process by which we become practically what we already are positionally. You see, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are as righteous as you're ever going to be in God's eyes. By the way, that's an amazing thought when, when that really sinks in. That means you can't improve upon it. You can't improve upon your righteous standing before God. I don't care if you did devotion seven days this last week, went to church three times, you did not improve your right standing before God because we are not, we are standing before God has nothing to do with our acts of righteousness or our lack thereof. It's all about him. But you are positionally righteous in Christ. Sanctification is the process by God's grace that we become practically what we already are positionally. How many of you guys rejoice that you're positionally righteous before God? How many of you guys would also readily admit that on the day-to-day -day practical level, it doesn't quite always look like that? Anybody still struggle with sin? Anybody in here still struggle with sin? Yes, we all do, obviously. And here's the great, wonderful game changer about Christianity, is that unlike other religious systems, Christianity is not a system that's there to if you are righteous enough, you can attain righteousness. Christianity flips it around, makes you righteous with right standing, and then you just change and become better. Does that make sense? Instead of the outside in, it's from the inside out. God changes us inwardly, and as his Holy Spirit comes into our life, we then begin to look like him. That's why we always say you can't clean the fish before you catch it. We have this nasty tendency as Christians to look at people in the world and say, I can't believe they're acting like that. Why can't you believe they're acting like that? They're sinners. And that's how you would be acting except for God's grace. 
you'd be burning cars and you'd be doing all those things the same way. Or you'd be sleeping around or you'd be getting hammered or you'd be all, because such were some of us. Except for the grace of God came into our lives. Listen, I'm going to give you some words of wisdom that were passed down to me. Dogs bark, cows moo, and sinners sin. It's in their nature. But when Christ comes in your life, you're given a new nature. And now the Holy Spirit of God comes in and that new nature is there and you begin to outwardly become different. And, and, and it's a process. And I want to stress that word process. Sanctification does not happen all at once. It is a process. And people are not on the same track. And we have to be very careful that we're not comparing, well, how come, well, I stopped smoking X amount of years ago, and I stopped doing that. What's your problem? You've been saved six months. How come you're not clean like me? We got to stop that. Sanctification is a process that happens over time, and it's all by God's grace. It's a process that is moved forward by the word of God. Jesus said in John chapter 17, 7, Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. The sanctification process happens faster as we marinate ourselves in the word of God and allow the word of God to change the way we think, and we have a heart of obedience towards the word of God. Amen? And, the, and not only that, we, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need his grace. We can't change ourselves. It says in Romans 8, 13, that by his spirit, we crucify our flesh. I love this analogy that my pastor years ago gave. You know, you can't, a person can't crucify themselves. Did you know that? Because if you lay it on the cross and you hammered one nail in, how are you going to get the other one nailed in? It's just impossible. You're never quite there. You're not able to do it. And that's how people live. They go, I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to, in my own energy, in my own strength, through my willpower, keeping rules, I'm going to make myself. It's not like that. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk more about that in a second if I can ever get out of first gear. But all that to say, I just want to just kind of define the terms here. So sanctification is a process by God's grace through which we are becoming practically what we already are positionally. So that's the delineation. So that's what this... Kind of keep this, that in mind as we go through this ceremony. That's the, the parallel we're going to keep making. So let's look at this crazy part of the, of, the, um, of the process or the ceremony. And this will not take as long as this first part did, hopefully. So if a person has been healed and they're coming to, to make their offering, this would be the sacrifice or the, the process. Look at verse 4. The priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live or wild clean birds, cedar wood, Scarlet yarn, hyssop, and the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and dip them in the live and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed in the fresh water. Then he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall, oh, I'll pause there. So let him go in the open field. You guys get all that? Okay, let's keep moving. I'm just kidding. That's weird. Anybody think that's just weird? It's weird. We're talking, okay, so you, t- you get a bird and some water and some scarlet yarn, some hyssop and some wood. You kill one bird with a ta-ta. What in the world is this talking about? There's a couple different theories as to the symbolism of this. I'll give you the first one. And it's not that they're both wrong. I think just one of them is more right. 
So the, the first one is this, is that some see in this that the birds are typical of the person that has been healed from leprosy. And what I mean by that is bird number one who is killed represents or would represent in that picture the death that the leper escaped. Whereas bird number two that was let go and flew away would represent the new life or the new chance that leper had been given. And there's nothing wrong with that interpretation. I think that that's probably really true. But I think a better true, uh, a more deeper, I think more um, accurate uh, picture in this is that it speaks of Jesus. Now, I mean, without even knowing what all the symbolism is, I mean, does, don't you automatically kind of start thinking of Jesus when you hear stuff like scarlet yarn, killed, running water, hyssop, some of these things start kind of, if you've read your Bible, they, there's like a, like a link to these things that make us think about Jesus. And this is what I think it, it does symbolize. First of all, the birds. I think uh, bird number one would represent Jesus in his death. Think about it. A bird is a heavenly being, but is contained in this picture and killed in an earthen vessel. The Bible says we have this treasure in earthen vessel. It likens our bodies to an earthen vessel. Jesus, who is the Son of God, became a man. And it, and it says that he was killed over the water. Water in, the, in the, the Bible typology speaks of, well, Jesus said he was the living water. Um, it speaks of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, of course, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Yet here he is, the one filled with the Holy Spirit, the heavenly one. Yet he's in an earthen vessel and he's killed. The scarlet thread speaks of a couple of things. Though your sin be as scarlet, it shall be white as snow, Isaiah said. Scarlet also speaks of royalty. Jesus is the king of kings. The wood, and it's, most times when you speak of the wood, it, it's a picture of the cross. And then you read about hyssop, which is this bush that was used for applying certain things. And that's associated with the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forgiven? forsaken me, they, they mistook him for saying that he was calling out for Elijah, and somebody grabbed some hyssop, remember that, and some sour wine, and offered it to Jesus, so you see hyssop at the cross. It was also hyssop that was used in Exodus 12 when they dipped the, or they had the blood from the lamb, and they dipped hyssop in the blood of the lamb to apply it to their doors. So there's, again, it's tying it all together, but my point is just simply this. I believe that first bird in this picture speaks of Jesus in his death. And the second bird would speak of Jesus in his resurrection. In that, listen, that second bird was marked by death in that blood was put on it. So it was stained with death, but it was alive and flew away. When we get to heaven and see Jesus, he's resurrected. He's alive, amen? But he's been marked by death. The Bible indicates that when we get to heaven, we will see the scars on his body that were there because of us. So all that to say is it speaks of Jesus. Now, keeping with our theme, and you guys are great students tonight, what does that have to do with this idea of sanctification? Oh, only everything. <laughs> only everything. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. I want you to physically turn there. This is when real Bibles trump electronic Bibles. Austin. Why is this picture of Jesus' death and resurrection connected to the idea of sanctification? And, of course, we could spend a whole 
semester, if you would, on this, but I just want to give you guys a couple of things. Romans chapter 6, the context, of course, Paul is laying out the gospel or, or justification by faith alone, and he's brought up this statement that he said, where grace abound, or sin abound, grace abounds much more, and preempting their question in chapter 6, he says, well, then why don't we just uh, continue in sin that grace may abound? There's some people that do think like that. Hey, if there's sin, grace every time I sin, I'll just keep sinning so more grace can abound. And Paul just shoots that down. And he does so by saying this. What shall we say? He says in verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Listen to verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead the glory of, to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Now stick with me. Paul says, it is impossible for a Christian to keep on sinning like that. Now listen to what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's impossible for a Christian to sin. Paul's not saying that. Of course we have the capacity to sin, but what he's going to establish is that when you came to Christ, a fundamental change happened inwardly. He puts it this way, you were baptized into Christ. Paul says in Galatians chapter 27, those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He's not talking about physical baptism right here, he's talking about what baptism symbolizes. The physical baptism of water baptism that we do is symbolizing the truth of what is stated right here, which is what? Baptism was always looked at as an initiation into something, an identification with something. And what Paul is saying clearly is that when you put your faith in Christ, you were baptized into Jesus. Therefore, you have fully identified with Jesus in two ways, in his death and in his resurrection. So when we physically baptize somebody into water, it's symbolic of this truth. We baptize people because they've been baptized. They've been baptized into Christ by faith, so we water baptize them to show the symbolism of that. And when we put them in the water, it's a, we're laying them down you know, backwards like, like they're dead, and we're burying them. But then we bring them back up. Why? Because if we don't, they'll die, real, for real. But then no, we bring them back up because... It's symbolic of the new life that we have in Christ. What's true of Jesus, Christian, is now true of you. He died, so you died. He lives, so you live. I, I always think of my friend Stephen in Oregon. I hope he hears this, but Stephen is one of my favorite guys in the world. His last name is Smiley, and it fits him because he's just like the happiest guy you've ever met in your life. I made the mistake early on when I met Stephen, and he showed up one day at our church, and his goatee was like down to here, and he just like bald, and just looked so rough. Find out he's a teddy bear, but anyways, um, I accidentally called him Steve one time, and he's like, Steve died. It's Stephen. Steve was the drug manufacturer, drug dealer, womanizer. He died. He died when I was in prison, uh, when I received Jesus Christ. I'm Stephen. And I love that because I was like, he di who died? Like, I was like scared of him for a minute. Like, wait, who, what are we talking about? Somebody died? Like, and you were in jail? What? Like, but the point, to him it's very real. No, that's the old me. And that guy died on the cross with Jesus. And I'm a new person. Now, the Bible says whoever's in Christ is a new creation. 
And what it says in Romans 6 is that we have, just like Christ was raised to new life, we've been raised so that we can walk in the newness of life, resurrection life now. By the way, the word newness means freshness of life. Now that chapter, by the way, goes on and it's doctrinally deep and it is absolutely the silver bullet to the lie of the devil that when you get saved, you'll always stay in the same sins. You can never change. You've always had a temper. You're going to have a temper. You've always be lustful. You'll always be lustful. You've always had anger, so you're going to always have anger. Nope. What that chapter declares is you got to know something. You died with Christ. That old man's dead. And the, the power of sin, pop, has been broken in your life. It's not that you can't sin, but it doesn't have the same power over you as it used to unless you give it that power. And he goes on to talking about, so yield yourself to righteousness. Don't yield yourself to that old man anymore. You don't owe him a thing. See, when, the old, when you were under the old man, the old man said jump, and you just said, how high? But now when the old man says jump, you say, no, because I'm a new creation in Christ. I don't have to jump when you say jump anymore. Go have sex with that person. No. Look at porn. No. Get drunk. No. Gossip. No. But if we do, we say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And we have forgiveness. It's not that we can't sin, but the power of sin has been broken. What if we actually believe this stuff? What if we walked in this? I think this is one of the greatest lies of the enemy. I think he tries to keep people out of Romans 6 so he can keep them under his thumb. And that's why Paul says, you've got to know this. You've got to know this. You've got to know this so that you can walk in victory and the newness, the freshness of life, which brings us to the next section. And don't panic, by the way, because I know you're like, what, you said 32 verses? We're going to just do 20, and I'll tell you why in a minute. There's a little spoiler coming. But now he says in verse 8, And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, and bathe himself in water. And he shall be clean, and after that he may come into the camp, but live outside the tent for seven days, like a partial quarantine. And on the seventh day he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, and even his eyebrows. And he shall shave off all his hair, and then he shall be wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. So what is this all about? I won't take a lot of time on this. There's a lot of washing and shaving and bathing and going on here. It speaks of a few things. Number one, I think it speaks of a fresh start. I mean, what's a guy look like when he shaves his eyebrows, right? What do you look like when you shave your head and you shave your eyebrows and you shave everything? You look like a baby. And you, you're all wet from your bath. You're like a little baby. And I think it's supposed to because it's like it's a new start. There's not a trace of that leprosy left on them. They're a new creation. And I think it's a beautiful picture of that. I also note that it was a process. Notice that they didn't just get to jump right back into the social life, jump back into home. There was a pro. They had to wash. They had to wait outside. They had to do all this. And we can speculate as to why and this on that. But I just want to point out this. It was a process and it took time. And to say what I've already said, I'll say again. Sanctification is a process. Guys, if we don't keep that in mind, we'll be frustrated with ourselves and we'll be frustrated with our brothers and sisters. Anybody ever get frustrated with yourself? Shouldn't I be over this by now? Shouldn't I be better than this by now? I can't believe I still sin in this area. Well, you're not done yet. You're under construction. And so is your brother and your sister. And guys, don't lose sight of that. We got to give each other a lot of grace within the body of Christ. There's a time to call one another out. There's a time to correct. Of course, we need to do that probably more than we do. 
But we also, I think we need to err on the side of grace and give people the benefit of the doubt because we don't know their struggles and we don't know what they've gone through and we need to just extend grace like grace has been extended to us. Just, I think, a good word. But lastly, in that little section, and I'll just make this real quick, not only does it speak of a fresh start and a process, but notice this, the person had to wash himself, bathe himself, shave himself. What does that mean? Personal responsibility. In this sanctification process, two things are true. Sanctification is God's work. God is the one that sanctifies us. Remember, cleans us up, makes us practically what we are positionally. Ultimately, it is God who does that. I'll throw some verses at you. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Hebrews 2.11. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Hebrews 2.11. I'll let you guys read those later since we're out of time already. So sanctification is ultimately God's work. He's the one that changes us. We can't change ourselves. But having said that, sanctification is also our responsibility. We have a role to play. It's not one or the other. Uh, there's verses like 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, which actually quotes Leviticus and says, Peter, in the New Testament uh, context, says, be holy because God is holy. We're to live holy lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I will read this one. Verse um, 3-ish. Where is it? 1 Thessalonians 4-3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to um, control his own body and in holiness and honor. That's God's will for your life, but he says you got to do that. And then uh, Romans 6-19, where, where Paul says, look, don't yield to your flesh, yield to the spirit. We could talk about Colossians when he says, Put off the old man, but put on the new. The point I'm trying to make is by virtue of the fact that there are those commandments for us to do something means that we have to put out effort. Wait, is it God that sanctifies us or do we have to actually do something? Yes. But here's the beauty. God partners with us. He's the one that's doing the heavy lifting. He's the one who's actually doing the work. But we have to actually partner with him in that process. Does that make sense? Oh, God, I just have such a problem with drinking. I don't know what the problem is. What are you doing after work? I'm going to go to the bar. You got a trouble with drinking? Stop going to the bar. Uh, maybe I'm making that too sound a little easier than it is, maybe. But do you understand what I'm saying? Like, we have to say, God, I can't do this. But I know in your word it says I'm not supposed to lie, and I'm a liar, and I tend to lie all the time, and I've tried to stop lying on my own, and I can't do it. You've got to help me. But, Lord, today I'm going to try, but by your grace, help me to not lie. Does that make sense? I gossip all the time, Lord, and as soon as they start yapping at work, I'm, I just jump right on in. I, I tell dirty jokes with everybody else, and I, but your word says I shouldn't do that. Oh, God, I can't seem to stop, but I, help me, but I'm going to try, but I need your help. Does that make sense? We have to, by God's grace, put forth the effort, and then he meets us there, and he does all the heavy lifting. He does all the work. I think the, the best way to talk about sanctification is in Galatians 5.16 where he says, walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. As you just preoccupy yourself with Jesus, you will be less prone to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, I want to I do this last section and I know it looks long and gnarly. It's not. I'm going to make it super quick. Promise. Got to read the chunk though, so read with me. Don't lose me. Verse 10. Now, this is the second part of the ceremony. We've done seven days. This is the eighth day. And on the eighth day, oh, by the way, eight in Bible numerology 
is the day of resurrection. It speaks of new beginnings. How fitting. A new beginning for this leper, ex-leper. On the eighth day, they take two male lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb, a year old without blemish, a grain offering, three-tenths of an epaph, fine flour mixed with oil, one log of oil. The priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed and the things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The priest shall take one of the male lambs offered as a guilt offering along with the log of oil. He'll wave them before the, as an offering before the Lord. And he will kill the lamb in the place where they kill the sin offering and the burnt offering in the place of the sanctuary. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It's most holy. The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and of the priest and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the man is to be cleansed, on the thumb of the right hand, and on the big toe of the right foot. And the priest shall take some of the log of oil and put it into the palm of his left hand and dip his, uh, the finger of his right hand uh, in, in the oil that is in his left hand and sprinkle some oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And some of the oil that remains in his hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot on top of the blood of the guilt offering. The rest of the oil that the priest's hand is in the priest's hand, he shall put, uh, uh, is put on the head, excuse me, of him who is to be cleansed. Then the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterwards he shall kill the burnt offering, which is that second lamb. And the priest uh, shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him who is to be cleansed. Now verses 21 through 32, we're not going to read because it's the exact same thing from verses 10 through 20, except modified if you were poor and couldn't afford two lamps. So let me just sum this up and we'll go our way. What is this all about? On this eighth day, they were to bring an offering. It consisted of two lambs, some oil, grain offering. They offer up the first one as a sin offering, or excuse me, a guilt offering. And what they would do is they would take the blood from that offering, listen, put it on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe. And the idea was is that the blood of that sacrifice has covered you from head to toe. How you hear, how you think, how, what you do with your hands. The sins you've made have been covered by the blood from head to toe. And then they would take the oil and he would put a big glob of it in his hand, his left hand. He would fling some at the guy. And then he would take some and put it on top of the blood on the right ear, on top of the blood on the right thumb, on top of the blood of the right toe, and then just dump the rest on him. Now in the Bible, the oil speaks of the Holy Spirit. And so what was he basically declaring? Not only are you forgiven and clean from head to toe, you are now anointed. You have the Holy Spirit. And guys, that is how this sanctification process works, that we have been forgiven, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to go forward and walk out this reality. Amen? One last thought. Do you understand that the only other time we see the anointing of the blood on the lobe and the thumb and the toe is in another ceremony in chapter 8? And it's for who? The priest. And I always wondered how priests think about that when they're like, wait a minute, that's our ceremony, and he's doing that to this like leper dude who has no eyebrows. How elevating for that leper. The only other person that had that, and they didn't even get the oil, they had the, the blood. These, what does it speak of? They're not second grade 
second-rate Christians. They've not only been forgiven, they've been anointed, and they have a ministry. And listen, you might think I've done some bad things in the past, but listen, that past that you have, your old leprosy, God will flip that, and you can use it as a testimony and an anointing for the work of the ministry. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. I feel like we barely scratched the surface of it, and there's so much more, and we're blown away. How can we not say tonight, thank you, thank you, thank you for forgiving all of our sin? And we praise you, God, that we're not only forgiven, that you've made us righteous by the work of Jesus Christ. May we always be in awe of that. May we never let that become old hat. May we never let that lose its awe. May it always reduce us to a puddle of just worship. And God, thank you that you will complete the work that you've begun in us. That God, we are still in process. And thank you that no one's more aware of that than you. (laughs) That you never lose sight of that. And I pray, God, that we would have grace even to ourselves. I pray we'd have grace on other people. But Lord, I pray you would continue to sanctify us that we might live lives that are holy and bring glory to you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.